This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there, how are you today? Uh, shortly an update on the future for those livestock still on board the MV Bahesia. And a little later in the hour today, uh, it's going to get pretty sweet because the spotlight is on honey. More and more cheap imported honey is finding its way onto our supermarket shelves. You'll find out what that means for local producers. You'll get an update on the threat of the varroa mite getting established here in WA. And also some good news for WA's honey producers because the current Mary tree blossom is a beauty. Um, the Mary flowering has been pretty prolific. Um, I think just driving around, if you, you look out into the bush, you can see white flowers absolutely everywhere. We'll take a closer look at that after the news headlines at half past 12 today. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Let's start with a trip to the Swan Valley, just northeast of Perth, where grape growers are bracing for another potentially damaging period of hot weather in the coming days. And that's after sweltering through their hottest day on record just last week. Kevin Peterson is the president of the Grape Growers Association of WA and is a small-scale table grape grower in the valley. He's mid-harvest because the table grape crop is about 25 days early this year and while quality has been really good, record hot weather last week has damaged some of the fruit. Normally we start off with our first varieties in the week after Christmas, maybe the first week of January. This year our first varieties were finished by uh, Christmas for some growers and we're noticing that our diaries from last year to this year are showing that we're 20 to 25 days earlier. We had a very dry spring which um, obviously had an effect on the time that fruit set and consequently everything thereafter in the process of growing grapes. Essentially, the season has been compressed by just under a month because of that dry spring. Are you happy with with the quality? The quality is good for a very dry season. We're surface watering or or boil watering, which um, keeps our water levels up so that uh, we can produce a a premium quality product. Um, So in that regard, the quality hasn't suffered. It's just the last uh, week or so of extreme hot weather that is now tending to affect our crop. Uh, not that the consumer in the in the shop would notice, but we're having to do a lot more work to present our product free of any damage. I think there was a record broken Thursday last week in the valley uh, for that temperature. It exceeded 45 you do have to work to make sure the grapes that go to market are not damaged, but what sort of damage are you looking at on the ground? For varieties, and there's only a couple of varieties that we haven't as yet started picking, for those varieties there may be actual berries in the bunches that are withered and basically browned off. Other bunches would have, the shoulders of the bunches have got some form of basically cooking going on. You can see where the berries there have have boiled. 
that means that we've got to go in with uh, scissors and cut those um, shoulders off, present a, a bunch that uh, doesn't have any heat damage to it. Is it possible to look at a figure of how much of your crop you've lost? You know, we're probably cutting 5 to 10% of our crop off, but it'd be very hard to estimate. Mm. You do have, looking at the forecast going forward, four days of plus 40 conditions. I think the weekend it's meant to be 43 degrees at least on yes. both days. So are you trying to get as much picked before then? What's What can you do to try and mitigate that potential future damage of that coming hot weather? Well, as well as picking off fruit that we can, we're certainly keeping water levels up because the, the we don't want the vine to stress and start to take moisture back from the bunches into the vine to survive. It's more a matter of making sure that the, uh, the vine is not suffering and um, stressed as far as water is concerned. And what do you do? You're running your own show there, Kevin. You've got a, a smaller property, which means you do most of the work yourself. How are you managing those really hot days? <laughs> with many with many visits to the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, as I say, we start picking very early in the morning, as early as the sun will allow us, and um, we're able to get a reasonable size pick off for the day and doing seven days a week, we slowly get through the crop. Kevin Peterson, he's the president of the Grape Growers Association of WA. Ten past twelve. Well, it's not just the table grape growers struggling with the heat. Duncan Harris is a winemaker in the Swan Valley and runs a small vineyard. Well, we're just a week away from finishing, which would be normally when we'd actually start in the good old days. Would this be your earliest finish ever, if you're finishing when normally you'd be starting? Yes, certainly is. You make wine at your vineyard. Does it change what you think you'll do, what what sort of varieties you'll make when you're dealing with grapes that have had a dry winter and then this hot finish? Do you, does it change your, your plans for the wine? Oh, yes, it does. Uh, there are different styles you can use to make better wine with the fruit that you've got. Um, but it's also the, the vintage is compressed, so it's really tight space and you have to plan very well about getting stuff fermented and through because you really want to pick it as early as possible to miss those hot days. Which I imagine means early starts and getting it off as quickly as possible. But you, you have had some really hot weather and, and more weather is coming that's probably not great for grapes. So what do you do with the weather-affected crop? I imagine you probably can't make wine out of some of it. Well, some of it becomes quite raisined and dried up and that could either go to fortified wines or, in my case, I could turn it into brandy. How does it work for that? If it's not good for wine, how can it make good brandy? Because we're just extracting the alcohol from the sugar. Of course, nice ripe grapes uh, ferment well and then once they're in the boiler as finished wine, then brandy it becomes. You don't irrigate your vines. so That's true. Yeah, so you've had a dry winter and you knew when it was time to prune the, the vines in July that it was... 
it wasn't looking great for the rest of the year. You pruned them quite short, you were saying? Yes. So we just leave less buds on the wire, which means that there's maybe more vigour or growth, but because of less water, then, or there's less rainfall, then they just don't grow as much, uh, but they don't have as much fruit to try and mature. So it balances out quite well. And if it is out of balance, like lots of growth, for instance, uh, then I can actually go and cut fruit off so that the vine then ripens the other fruit and survives quite well. And when you look at the the rainfall that you've had for the year, Duncan, was that a good decision, do you think, to prune quite short? Oh, yes, sure. Uh, 448 mils is 300 mils less than last year and uh, 200 mils less than average. Well, average in the last 20 years for me. 448 is about half the old average. When I'm talking old, I'm talking about 100 years ago on the climate records we've got for Baskerville. So it's, um, let's say we'd like to see an, a wet year next year, please. Duncan Harris, who's a small wine and spirit maker based in the Swan Valley, just northeast of Perth. And that report from Joe Prendergast. We will head to the Bureau of Meteorology just after half past 12 today to check those weather conditions for the rest of the week. I mean, looking right across the state, really, it looks like hot conditions. But the duty forecaster at the bomb will go through that in detail for you shortly. 14 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. A number of mining industry analysts don't believe Australia's critical minerals sector deserves a taxpayer-funded lifeline. Now, this follows last week's announcement that yet another nickel mine is about to close. That'll be the fourth in the past month. It's all been happening during some pretty big falls in commodity prices. Last month, crisis talks were held between state and federal governments, industry leaders and unions where some of the options like the royalty relief were being discussed. Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King is also saying she'll ask Treasury to cost a proposed production tax credit, which is designed to encourage onshore processing of minerals. But mine life analyst Gavin Wendt doesn't think these sorts of measures are warranted. Well, my view is that uh, what we're experiencing in the nickel industry in Australia and worldwide is just part of the ongoing commodity cycle, the boom and bust cycle that is prevalent throughout the ages within commodities. And we've seen it right across the board for commodities. We see periods of rising demand, uh, increasing supply, falling prices, rising prices. Commodity prices rarely stay still. And quite often we're in periods of of boom and bust. Uh, That is the nature, really, of of the commodity sector. There is a lot of volatility. And what we're going through now with uh, nickel prices is a a significant period of weakness. But um, I wouldn't be in favour of government intervention. I think that would be quite unprecedented and um, quite unwarranted. I mean, so long as commodity markets can function transparently, then that is all we can ask for. And as the nature of participants, they understand the risks when they get involved in the commodity business, that there are periods of rising prices. There are also periods of falling prices. 
So um, I think that's really important to bear in mind. We can look at other industries, for example, in the manufacturing and the fact that we had a car industry. And there are very strong arguments for and against, and there are very, very loud voices, those that believe in the free market and say, hey, we should not be subsidising, provide any assistance to our car industry, our motor vehicle industry. It should be able to stand on its own two feet, even though there were circumstances where other countries, regional neighbours offered tax rates that were significantly lower than ours and wage rates that were significantly below ours. So you could argue that it wasn't necessarily a level playing field, but nevertheless, the support and the incentives uh, and the subsidies were withdrawn. We no longer have a car industry. So I don't think you can apply one argument, say our industry should be competitive and uh, should be determined by market forces in one instance and then say, hey, our, our industry is a, is, a, is a separate case because as far as I'm concerned in the nickel industry, there's nothing nefarious going on. It's just the fact that markets are currently oversupplied and they're oversupplied at the moment with a lot of very uh, low-cost nickel coming out of Indonesia. Mine Life analyst Gavin Went speaking to Alice Marshall. Another independent mining analyst, Peter Strachan, says in the past 12 to 18 months, Australia's nickel industry has ballooned out to an unsustainable level. And you can read more on that story by searching ABC Rural and Nickel to read Alice's story. 18 past 12. The WA Farmers Livestock President says the remaining sheep and cattle on board the MV Bahesia are likely to be unloaded by early next week and could still be re-exported. Jeff Pearson says the Federal Department of Agriculture wants the livestock off the ship as soon as possible. He says the livestock will go back to the pre-export quarantine facility they were located before the voyage. There's no urgency. I mean, the ship come alongside a few days ago and filled up with, replenished the ship with feed and fodder. And obviously the vets looked over the livestock at well at the same time. Uh, so the animals are comfortable. Um, they've gone out to sea to uh, to wait until such time as it can uh, birth again because I understand that there's a, a livestock vessel that's waiting to load or wanting to load at the moment with some uh, sheep to go uh, out of the quarantine facility to allow these ones to come back into the into the quarantine facility. Okay. Now, there's uh, two local young farmers who have the export licence for this cargo and understand you've been help, helping them through this. Is it your understanding that they'll reapply to ship this uh, this livestock to Israel. Yeah, so the, so the, the the circumstances will be that we'll we'll offload uh, the livestock for probably a minimum of ten days, mm-hmm. um, five to ten days is what the department's um, stipulated on us, uh, and it will look at um, obviously clearing the air with the uh, the uh, importing permit into Israel, um, and then we'll look at re uh, um, protocoling these animals to to allow them to return to the ship and uh, and go the long-haul voyage to um, back to their market. And is it the two local farmers, um, they, they have the export licence for this cargo, are they acting as an agent for another party? Uh, no, this is this is a tr- traditional way that someone holds the, their licence to, to export the cattle and they'll um, and obviously um, you know, work with the consignment to um, for, for documentation and, and whatnot to, uh, to allow these animals to re- reload. So what do they need to do differently to get permission to... Well, basically what, what we've gone through in this situation, we've gone through a couple of contingency plans. One was that the contingency plan was to resail after they come out of the danger zone around the long way um, around Africa to get to, to destinations in, in, in safer waters. 
Uh, so that was one contingency plan that they put to the department and the department denied that. And, and by the time they'd got to not far off the, off the Cape of, of South Africa, they were asked, ordered back by the department and to reapply another contingency plan about what would they would do to resale back around that, that route. So this is where the, the problem lies is that, you know, between the department turning the, the uh, vessel back to Australian waters and to date, we're, we're 20 days and we got a decision on the 19th day to what was going to happen. So that's been the issue all the way along is that the department in the lack of um, applying a permit to go an alternative way um, has caused us you know, the, the time and the delay of, of where we're at at the moment. You've been uh, listening to what's been a pretty emotional, very public debate. Uh, it's also reignited the live sheep debate. The two young farmers that have the export licence, local farmers, have they been bearing the brunt of this? Oh look, we're all Streets. been bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, in industry, yeah. Look, we're we're all in that in that position by some of the left wing uh, commentary that's been coming out. Have they been getting threatened own. at all? Look, yeah, we're all we all have been. Yep. It's not just the exporter. It's not the exporting company. It's industry. It's people that are working in industry. Um, yeah. Look, we've had to field a lot of um, uh, commentary. Uh, we've had to you know set a lot of statements straight about you know the truth of some of these comments that are coming out. And look, we're we're in the brunt of it. So yeah, look, it, it financially and and emotionally, it's 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 draining. Have you had people threaten you? Yes, I have. What, what sort of threats? Uh, just emails, text messages, um, just yeah, going through inappropriate social media. Um, yeah, look, it, it it's, it's it's ongoing and it's disappointing because yeah. you know what we we we're dealing with this in a professional manner. We're professional people. We're a professional industry, and and this is what we like to keep it that way. Jeff Pearson, he is WA Farmers Livestock President, speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. 22 past 12. Well, the head of a group representing meat processors in Australia says he doesn't think any Australian abattoir is ready to start processing the sheep off the MV Bahija. Patrick Hutchison is the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council. He says if the exporter who owns the livestock decides processing the animals in Australia is the best course of action, it will take some time to organise considering the current backlogs. We probably should recognise that I don't think any processor in the country would be able to all of a sudden start processing 15,000 sheep as opposed to all of those other producers who have been working on their livestock, diligently waiting, everything being set up, and then next minute, sorry, we're now going to have to process these. For some people, 15,000 sheep could well be, you know, four days kill out of six. So, look, there, there are many and varied ways if processes were compelled to process these, including weekends, to manage those, um, splitting them up, etc. So all of those would be there. But as I said previously, the scenario is, is that this is a department's decision not to grant them an export licence. So they'll be unloaded. That exporter will make a commercial decision around that. And big picture is something you do in your role, right? So big picture, does this do events like this highlight the need for further investment or support for processing capacity in WA? I think in WA we've uh, had this discussion uh, obviously quite a lot over the last six months. We have provided the necessary information about what does an expanded meat processing industry in WA look like. But again, you know, we've got to be absolutely clearly vital about how we manage this. And the reason that we do that is, is that in too many times over the last 100 years in this country, we have expanded capacity and processing only to have either climatic conditions or many other things be undertaken in order to ensure that we then have an undersupply or we have an oversupply of workers. 
This is about looking at how can we effectively invest into the future around innovation and many other uh, opportunities to allow us to then expand uh, the WA meat processing capacity, but in a way that is manageable and that doesn't put strain on those processing companies that all of a sudden they could have you know, machines, they can have structures and systems idle uh, for periods of time. These government department decisions are happening at a time the government is investigating its plan to phase out live export of sheep from Australia as a policy. As meat processors in Australia, you're not taking part in live export, but do you have a position on whether live export of sheep could, should continue? No, we don't have a position, Warwick. It's nothing to do with us. Live sheep uh, in Western Australia and live cattle uh, are a competitor to us and uh, they take a certain type of livestock at a certain time. Uh, in a lot of circumstances with sheep, very much out of specification for the domestic market uh, and certainly more in uh, that export market, uh, very much the same. So it's very much horses for courses, yet we don't have any position in regards to uh, live export. They're a competitor and that's that's that. So with that in mind, given you work with that industry, but you also stand to benefit if it's phased out, how do you think their government's handling this issue with this boat? Look, I think that the, there's a lot of moving parts in regards to this boat. There's a lot of scenarios that we've put forward, uh, that have been put forward to us and others. I think that in this time, what happened has happened has been that it's very opaque in regards to decision-making. And as such, once the Secretary of the Department has come in, you know, there's certainly been a, a pretty quick resolution to that. So I think where the frustrations have lied for a lot of people is they've not really understood the decision-making process goes, but also we've got to remember that the current regulatory, regulatory environment means that the exporter is making most of the decisions. So the department can only make a decision based on what an exporter wants to make a decision on. Do you want to go a certain spot? Do you want to unload? Do you want to unload some, et cetera? So that's what we've heard. But again, from a processing perspective, you know, we've just been an observer around this process in order to ensure that we're ready if you know we're compelled to do something. I think probably more importantly to one of your points around we stand to benefit, I think we've got to keep remembering currently these sheep as they are uh, when they are exported are out of spec for most of our markets. Now, if live sheep were to, to cease, in fact, it's actually about the producer's decision to want to continue to produce sheep. Patrick Hutchinson, he is the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, so representing the processing side of the sector, and speaking to Warwick Long. 27 past 12, well, we'll get to the news headlines in a couple of minutes or so. First, though, banks, supermarkets, aviation and energy companies are exploiting their market power in ways that drive up inflation and hurt Australian households. That's the finding in a new 80-page report into price gouging and pricing practices by big business. The report by former ACCC Chair Alan Fells was commissioned by the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Alan Fells outlined his findings at the National Press Club this morning. The cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Two policies are needed. First, the Australian government needs to act on high prices, to investigate their nature and causes, and where possible, their remedies. 
The remedies don't include price controls, but there is much that governments can do. Secondly, greatly strengthen competition policy to remove or weaken market power, which enables the excessive prices to be charged. So the focus is at the effects of prices on ordinary people, on workers, on uh, farmers, uh, on poor and disadvantaged people. In my report, I refer to prices going up quicker than they fall. Petrol is a well-known example. Goes up fast, falls slowly. This is sometimes called the rocket and feathers effect. When costs rise, business prices rise fast, like a rocket. When costs fall, business prices fall slowly to the ground, like a feather. It's very profitable to delay price falls. A recent example, well known, concerns meat. Now, as inflation starts to fall, I'm concerned there may be a rockets and feathers effect on prices. We want business to play its role. Having played a role in getting prices up, we want it to play a role in getting them down like rockets, not feathers. Former ACCC Chairman Professor Alan Fells speaking at the National Press Club today about his findings into price gouging and unfair pricing policies. The blistering report also stated that excessive pricing is not unlawful in Australia and called for the government to act, especially as many Australians struggle with cost of living pressures. Professor Fells will hand his findings to the government to consider the report's 35 recommendations. 29 to 1. Jonathan Beale in the studio. What's happening in the headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. One of WA's worst repeat offenders is set to be released after decades in custody. Kingsley Pickett, who's now aged in his 40s, has dozens of convictions, including two counts of manslaughter over the deaths of Margaret Blurton and her one-year-old son Shane in 1991. Pickett was being chased by police in a stolen car when he slammed into the Blurton's vehicle. He also has convictions for breaking into a home and raping a woman and rioting in prison. Pickett will be subject to 45 conditions upon his release. Energy giant Woodsides backed away from a merger deal with South Australian company Santos. In December, the companies revealed they were discussing merging into an $80 billion global oil and gas business. Woodside has advised the market it's ended the talks and will continue to be disciplined in its approach to mergers and acquisitions. And an emergency level bushfire is threatening lives and homes in parts of Bulls Brook, north of Perth. The out-of-control blaze was reported just after 11.30 this morning and is moving fast in a southwesterly direction. It's burning near homes and the Pierce Air Base. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you for that update, Jonathan. 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Still to come, it's off to Catanning just before one o'clock today going through the yarding and prices at the sheep market today. Tracy Kilner will have those details. And also taking a look at the impact of more and more imports of honey coming into Australia. We'll get to that shortly. First, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Caroline Crow with you this afternoon. Caroline, we could pretty much start 
you know, North East or Southwest Land Division, it is a hot story this week. That's right, Val. It is definitely. Look, let's start up in the northeast in the Kimberley because uh, that's, I guess, uh, whether we're, we've got thunderstorms at the moment and then we'll talk about the heat because that's going to cover most of the state really. So uh, from a thunderstorm perspective, uh, there's been some thunderstorms around uh, from this morning through eastern parts of the Kimberley and they're gradually just uh, been progressing uh, towards the uh, northwest. So it's got a southeasterly uh, push behind it and it just continued uh, to push uh, all the way towards the northeast and getting pretty close to the coast now. So, um, yeah, but the thunderstorms are potentially we could see still extend throughout the Kimberley into today and northeastern parts of the interior as well. And continuing from a thunderstorm perspective over the next couple of days, the thunderstorms really are just going to mainly be confined uh, through the Kimberley and into parts of the uh, interior at times uh, coming into the outlook period and also extending into our eastern parts of the Pilbara coming into Thursday and then extending right pretty much through most parts of the Pilbara and to far northern parts of the Gascon on Friday before contracting back to the Kimberley Bell. Um, the thunderstorms could be pretty gusty at times as well. Um, and from a rainfall perspective, we've still been seeing some decent falls out of the thunderstorm. Some of them have been slow moving, so we could still see um, 30 to 40 millimetres, maybe isolated more than that over the next couple of days. Uh, but that rainfall, uh, the heavier fall, is more confined just to the north Kimberley there. And then as you mentioned, Belle, it is getting hot again. Um, well, it's very hot still, and it's just uh, yeah, going to get even warmer, particularly uh, through a large portion of of the state, uh, well above average temperatures again. So it's a little bit similar to what we experienced last week as well. So starting up north, um, four to eight degrees, even getting to 10 degrees above average through, uh, particularly through western parts of the Kimberley into the uh, Pilbara. And then even as we get sort of more closer towards the Gascoyne and the West Gascoyne coast, we're getting up to uh, 12 to 14 degrees above average um, at times through there. And then into uh, yeah the gold the gold fields the interior and uh, getting down towards the eucla won't be as hot the above average is about two to four degrees um, from from a temperature perspective of when the peak is uh, so today just to give some uh, temperatures uh, Fitzroy Crossing is looking at forty Marble Bar forty three Telfer forty one Gascoyne Junctions looking at around forty four Meekathara thirty seven and as we get into the gold fields uh, so around the Kalgoorlie area we've got 32 and then as we progress through the week coming into Thursday every day we're going to see a little bit warmer uh, but the peak is gradually more sort of um, getting into uh, later on in the weekend or later on in the week in the weekend so by Sunday Gascoigne Junction is looking at 47 degrees, Mekathara 42, Marble Bar 46 uh, so definitely heating up and for the Goldfields area the peak is probably more on that Sunday, Monday uh, time frame bell and then, Caroline, I mean, you know, even beyond that, I mean, nothing much changes. I know it's early days, but if you do take a little peek further ahead than that, is it sort of similar? Yeah, that the heat does hang around Bell, uh, particularly through those northern parts. Uh, like I said, the peaks probably uh, coming into that Sunday, Monday, uh, coming into Tuesday, we might see a couple of degrees less coming into uh, sort of the, the eastern parts of the Pilbara and sort of the southwest of the, the Kimberley, uh, but still in the mid 40s. But it just continues to get warmer potentially through that Gascoigne area, particularly the western half of the Gascoigne. Uh, so it does continue. Um, 
for a, a good uh, a week, Belle. Um, and then as we progress further south into the southwest land division, so we've got that trough deepening, which is bringing those warm temperatures uh, all the way south. And uh, we're gradually on a increasing trend from today now uh, for the southwest land division from a temperature perspective. So uh, the peak for, um, well, let me say today uh, is looking at, um, sorry, I'll just grab. There we go. Uh, 38 for Geraldton, 38 for Morrowa, getting into 35 for Muckenburden. Uh, we've got 36 for Perth today and even getting right down to the southwest corner, Bridgetown's 35 degrees. Now, as those temperatures increase uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is going to be the peak mostly for the uh, western parts of the southwest land division. So those western districts, Geraldton's 44, um, is going to be 43. Getting into Perth, we're looking into the low 40s and uh, getting right down into the low 40s all the way down to the South Coast as well. So 41 for Bridgetown, Mar Margaret Rivers 37, uh, Windy Harbour's 31, Bell uh, inland a little bit more, Car Calabarans uh, 40, Southern Cross is getting close to 40 as well, and Lake Grace is 40. Um, but then coming into uh, as the weekend progresses, Saturday is going to be pretty hot. And then on Sunday, just that southwest corner might be uh, a little bit cooler, uh, but the hotter temperatures do then start to progress. So Sunday, Monday is more going to be those hotter days for the central. Uh, uh, Wheat Belt District, uh, eastern parts of the Great Southern, getting into sort of the uh, southeast coastal district and that Kalgoorlie district bell. Um, looking further ahead as well, there is a tiny little bit of reprieve that it looks like on Monday and Tuesday where we see the temperatures drop a little bit, particularly along the south coast uh, and um, where they'll start drop, getting to the mid-20s, uh, mid-high 20s, um, closer around Perth and the Wheat Belt, they'll be uh, mid-30s still um, but potentially uh, pick up again from uh, mid next week again, Belle. And then from a fire concern, is it windy or thunderstorm activity in the southwest land division? Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up, Belle. So the winds are generally going to be uh, northeasterly winds through the southwest land division uh, for the most part. Uh, we might see just some sort of the, the west coastal sea breezes, but they're not going to penetrate too far inland until potentially on that Monday where we see that little bit of re true reprieve before sw swapping around again. But yes, they are generally northeasterly, so they're getting dry winds from uh, the land um, and they will be uh, windy and gusty at times. And that's actually for a good part of the state. So even right up into the Gascoigne, uh, the gold fields um, and particularly northern parts of the southwest land division, they'll be uh, gusty at times. Um, but we will be seeing uh, moderate to fresh, yeah, northeasterly winds, um, Bell, and uh, combined with those temperatures, uh, as you mentioned, the fire danger ratings. So we are seeing elevated fire danger ratings, generally looking at highs through uh, a good portion of the state and into the southwest land division and potentially even some extreme pockets uh, over the next few days, Bell, sort of uh, mostly those west coastal districts, uh, parts of the central west, parts of the lower west, and right down even to the, that south coast, uh, southwest corner there, we're going to see some extremes at times into the... Um, um, next three, four days at this point. And then this afternoon, any warnings today? Yeah, currently, Belle, we just have that heat wave warning. So that's associated with those hot temperatures uh, for quite a uh, portion of the state. So it extends. We've got low uh, to severe heat wave in the western parts of the Kimberley, extending uh, through into the Pilbara. Uh, but the main severe aspect is then from the western parts of the Gascoigne and it's extending right down the west coast, Belle. 
Uh, thank you for all those details, Caroline. 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Richard Hudson in the studio. And has there been much rain about? Some in the north anyway. Only in the north. And so this is in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip 34, Diggers Rest 15, Doongan and Drysdale River Station both recorded 33, Emma Gorge 43, Flora Valley 20, Gibb River 19, Halls Creek 15, Lansdowne 9, Marion Downs 50, Mullabulla Airstrip 41, Mount Barnett 30, Mount House Airstrip 5, Old Mornington Homestead 19, Siddons Creek 33 and Yulumbu. Last but not least, in fact it was the most, 73 mils. No rainfall anywhere else at all in WA in the last 24 hours. There are eight fires burning in WA at the moment. They're all at an advice level. There's others that are not at that high, but let's hope with these uh, high temperatures that the eight that are at at an advice level don't uh, escalate and get a bit more out of control. And currently no harvest bans in place. Thanks for that, Richard. Uh, 19 to 1 here on the Country Hour on the ABC, right across WA on the ABC Listen app and also streaming live on the web. Australia's beekeepers are worried more and more cheap imported honey is making its way onto our supermarket shelves. As Brandon Long discovered, that's dragging down the price of locally produced honey. It's the cheap imported honey that, that's killing us. That's beekeeper Andrew Ferugia. He owns homegrown honey at Logan in southeast Queensland and sells his honey to smaller retailers, markets and private customers. His price of $7.80 for one kilo tubs hasn't moved for a decade as input costs like jar prices and diesel have risen sharply. I've had to keep my prices the same for that 10-year period just so that we can get product on the shelf to compete with the imported cheap honey. The Australian Honey Bee Industry Council says imports did have an effect on Australian prices. That is adding to the supply of honey to the Australian marketplace. An element uh, of that is having an effect on the, the price that the beekeeper is receiving for their honey. Council Vice Chair John Lockwood says it is making imports a focus, setting up an imported honey subcommittee and meeting for the first time last year. As subcommittee chair, Mr Lockwood says the council is concerned about imported honey coming into Australia and the committee will investigate whether there is a problem with really cheap honeys coming in to ensure a level playing field. He says beekeepers are receiving $4 to $4.50 a kilo for their honey at the moment, which is historically low. Considering inflation, um, we were receiving prices similar to that um, years ago, so it is... It is starting to hurt the beekeeper's back pocket. Most honey imported into Australia comes from China, with the remainder coming from countries like New Zealand, Argentina and Brazil. When it reaches Australian shores, the tonnages and dollars become hard to track. Some is used in food manufacturing, some is blended with Australian honey and sold on supermarket shelves, and some is blended with Australian honey and re-exported. Australia's biggest honey company, Hive & Wellness, is one of the major importers. The majority Australian-owned company, which produces 100% Australian brand Capilano, voluntarily retired its imported brand, Allowry, from supermarket shelves in 2019 after 17 years on the market amid media allegations. It still sells Allowry to food service companies. 
What shoppers may not know is it subsequently introduced three cheap imported honeys at the supermarkets, Cloverdale at Woolworths, the Honey Collective at Coles and Chandler's at IGA from $4.40 for a 375-gram jar, which is $11.70 per kilo. Cloverdale contains 90% South American honey and 10% Australian product. The Honey Collective is 20% New Zealand and 80% local. And Chandler's is packed in Australia from at least 10% Australian ingredients. All three bottles are printed with Honey Corporation of Australia, which is what Capilano was called at one stage. That undercuts the price of the cheapest branded honey by $7.50 a kilo. Even cheaper are one kilo tubs of Indian honey, which farmers markets have been selling for $7. Supplier Aegean Import-Export did not respond to questions by deadline. Asked if imported honey affected the amount Australian beekeepers were paid, Hive and Wellness CEO Ryan Delmeda says no. Um, to the contrary, we do our best to hold the Australian honey price well above the international honey price. Um, the international honey price at the moment, whether it be South America or Thailand or Vietnam or other honey producing nations, is currently uh, around 35% cheaper than Australia. Mr. Dalmeda also says imported honey accounts for 10% of supermarket sales, which is a very small amount. When Hive and Wellness retired Alary from supermarkets, it said it was a first step on the journey to making all honey products 100% Australian. As to why imported brands are still being sold during higher production years, the CEO says they were continued due to high inflation. When honey supply did come back on, we've sort of rolled into this period of um, higher inflation, higher interest rates, um, and a much more sort of value oriented um, market where consumers are very cost conscious. And given that the international price of honey um, concurrently has fallen dramatically, we continued with those imported brands um, and they are playing the role on the supermarket shelf for people who don't really care about origin, who don't really care about brand, um, all they care about is price. And um, so these value brands are sort of offering a solution to a, a small proportion of the market. If we don't do it, someone else is going to fill that void, whether it's onshore or offshore. Someone will offer an, a cheaper imported product for that proportion of, the, of shoppers who want to buy that product. In statements to the ABC, Coles, Woolworths and Metcash said they supported Australian beekeepers but did not answer questions about whether they requested Hive and Wellness to introduce the three imported brands. University of Sydney Research Fellow and Plan B co-lead Dr Nadine Chapman is an advocate for buying Australian honey. Dr Chapman says not only does buying locally support the honey producer, it also supports the pollination industry, which helps grow about one-third of our food. When you're buying honey from overseas, you're buying honey that's produced by bees that have pollinated other countries' crops and supported all the industries that required pollination in those other countries. I know that there's big cost of living pressures right now. And so when you're going to the supermarket, you're looking at what's the cheapest product I can buy. You know, maybe just consider, is it worth a little bit more to buy Australian made and support 36 industries at a minimum when you're buying that one product? 
Dr Nadine Chapman from Sydney University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. And you can read more on Brandon Long's story. Just search ABC Rural and Honey and you will find it on the ABC Rural website. 12 to 1. The state's beekeepers are doing all they can to prepare for what they say is the inevitable arrival of the destructive varroa mite into Western Australia. The pest can devastate commercial beehives and was first detected in Australia at the port of Newcastle in the middle of 2022. Since then, thousands of eastern states' hives have been destroyed and authorities have determined Australia now has to figure out how to live with the Varroa mite. Mikey Chinotta is the owner of Pemberton Honey Company. He's also the chair of the WAB Industry Council and says it's only a matter of time before the mite crosses the Nullarbor and when it does, there's no way we'll ever get rid of it. You only need one mite in that entire swarm and then you've got a Varroa infestation because the mite, when it hatches with the baby bee, is actually already pregnant and fertile. Beekeepers are probably saying it's a matter of when, not if. What's really important is doing everything that we can, firstly, to keep it out, but then making sure that, like I said, beekeepers are doing the checks on their colonies as they're required to so that if it gets here or when it gets here, we pick it up very, very early. And we are still a shot at eradication here in WA if we can pick it up early enough. That's what's absolutely critical in all of this. In your own business, are you still, I guess, expanding with that in the back of your mind that in 18 months' time, you might have to exit the industry like others on the East Coast. What we're doing is everything that we can within our power to prepare so that if or when it gets here, we're not chasing our tail. Um, so, you know, there's certain ways that we can manage colonies. There's certain ways that we can set colonies up to reduce the impact of Varroa. Of course, that all takes time and, and money to do. Um, but we view it within our business as a really smart investment into our future is that, you know, we're, we're committed to this industry. Um, we absolutely love it. I can't really imagine doing anything else. We will survive with Varroa. The good businesses will survive with Varroa and find a way forward. Surely there's a flow-on effect, Mikey, though, from not just the bee industry but others around you because obviously we need pollinators You'll see a mass exodus of, of beekeepers. Um, the, the hardest hit sector is the, the hobbyist or amateur beekeepers um, because generally they're beekeeping for fun and because it's, it's easy to do here in WA. And then, like I said, those businesses that don't run a tight ship and don't practice to the best standard, I guess, they get found out quickly as well. Um, and then what we also see is the wild honeybees or feral honeybees, which surround a lot of our farms here in the southwest that provide huge amounts of, of free pollination to farmers. Um, those honeybee colonies in the, in the bush, they disappear uh, because the varroa mite eventually takes hold of them and they die off. But you've got a mass exodus of beekeepers, so it's a simple supply and demand equation, is that if you don't have the number of hives there, then the price you're paying per hive to secure that that critical service becomes higher and higher. So for those growers, and there's a lot of them, um, you know, whether it's broadacre for canola or whether it's you know apples or pears or citrus or avocados, they're, they're going to have to factor in new costs into their business models. And again, this is just the experience of what's happened everywhere else in the world. So we're, we're not going to be any different. 
fertiliser and diesel and all that sort of, all of those associated costs are all on the up and then you're just adding in one more on top of that, it'll be a, I guess, a learning curve, not just for beekeepers when Varroa gets here, but also for a lot of uh, growers of, of the f- beautiful um, fruit and vegetables that we eat. Is our state government doing enough to help you prepare for this? Uh, this is a loaded question. <laughs> I, I personally would like to see them do more. Um, you know, we, we've had several meetings with the department and uh, with the minister and her office, and you know, there's an, an agreement um, that that you know bees are really, really important, and and there's a, there's a role here for both government and for industry, and certainly industry needs to do more to help itself as well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've been crying out for even just increasing compliance within the beekeeping industry. We're, we're an industry which is screaming out, asking to be regulated more closely um, because that, that regulation and compliance, what we saw in New South Wales, is one of the biggest problems. With, there was no history of compliance checking. That, that makes you susceptible because you always end up with cowboy operators. I think that that's, that's across most industries. And, and they're the ones that put everybody else at risk. Whether you've got you know, bees in your backyard or you're running a commercial operation like ours, Varroa can turn up anywhere. So it's everybody's responsibility. But unless the government's going to follow up and enforce and make sure, um, it's it's kind of, it's almost a toothless tiger. It, it's like having speed limits and then no cops on the road to make sure that people obey those speed limits. The, the line just constantly gets pushed and, and then ultimately you end up with um, people not following those rules. Maki Chinotta, he's beekeeper and chair of the WA Bee Industry Council. In October last year, WA's Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis said the government had extensive surveillance and early detection measures in place to protect WA's honeybees and she encouraged all beekeepers to register their hives and check them regularly. Six minutes to one. Well, things aren't all doom and gloom for WA's beekeepers at the moment, and that's because Mary trees are having a very good blossom this year. In the last few weeks, you may have noticed they're big white flowers. When that happens, beekeepers, like Mikey Chinotta, can't stop smiling. Pleasingly, it means I'm doing far less kilometres this year. You know, we usually do around about 50,000 k's a year, um, in the in the ute just doing reconnaissance and and running out to the bees and then about another 30,000 k's a year in the truck shifting bees and bringing honey back and I reckon to this point um, because we had a jarrah flowering which was which was close to home and then that was followed up by um, a good black butt flowering and now the marry we've been able to essentially beekeep from home which is which is really strange I'm used to spending a lot of time in my caravan and away from my, my wife and children. So you're packing and processing Mary honey here at Pemberton Honey? Yeah, at the moment we are. Um, the Mary flowering has been pretty prolific. Um, I think just driving around, if you, you look out into the bush, you can see white flowers absolutely everywhere. So the Mary's had a couple of years off, particularly down here in the southwest. So traditionally it's a biannual flowering event. So last year we were anticipating a, a good Mary flowering um, because it was due. It was its, you know, it was its second year cycle. Um, but the spring and, and start of summer last year, I don't know if you remember, was really mild. So it was almost like the trees became too comfortable. It's almost chalk and cheese from, from how we are now to how we were this time last year. But for us, that's meant that, you know, we've been able to produce a lot of Mary honey and we've been able to do that really close to home and then pack and value out it here in Pemberton. Mary honey 
is probably one of the honeys that I don't hear about as much as compared to Jarrah honey or Manuka honey. What are the health benefits of Mary honey? All honeys are a, a natural sugar. So that's, the, I guess, the starting point is that it's not a processed sugar, so it's a, a much better option for, for your body. Um, Mary is a highly active honey as well, very similar to Jarrah. I guess there's not been the marketing around that activity, so it's, it's not overly strong, it's not a dark honey, um, and it's not overly sweet and, and light. I know that they've used it in clinical trials um, at the children's hospital for use for um, treatment for, for uh, kids after they've had their tonsils removed, and those trials, I believe, were, were quite successful. So rather than you know pumping the kids full of drugs to help them, they were giving them a a nice big teaspoon of honey, which is far easier to get kids to take. A spoonful of honey makes the medicine go down. Price difference? Yeah, there's definitely a price difference, and that's just largely got to do with marketing. Um, yeah, there's there's flavour profile, and again, that, that candy and crystallising um, delay in Jarrah, which probably makes it more appealing and subsequently drives the price up a little bit. Beekeeper Maki Chinotta, who runs the Pemberton Honey Company, he was speaking to Kate Forrester. Three to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today, a scathing report into closing the gap. Government's urge to do more to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. A mother in the US convicted of involuntary manslaughter for giving a firearm to her son who went on to carry out a school shooting. And rental sting, undercover inspectors sent into properties in Victoria to crack down on real estate rip-offs. Those stories and much more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. 8,332 sheep and lambs were yarded at the Catanning Market today. That is up 1,564 from last week. Tracy Kilner, hello. How did it go today? The yarding was dominated by mutton, gaining once again with heavy weathers selling for $48 and news reached $45 a head. Store lambs dominated the lamb yarding, gaining with feeder interest. The heaviest lambs sold to $135 a head. Very plain pens once again sold to minimal values with no interest from buyers. The lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold to $77. Weights under 18 kilos carcass weight gained, selling to 97. Trade weights returned 84 to 114. And heavy weights made from 111 to $135 a head. Store used sold from 2 to $28. Medium weight sold to $37. And heavy weight used over 30 kilos carcass weight returned from 35 to $45 a head. The heavyweight weathers sold at $48 and mature rams made from $5 to $31 and $66 to restockers. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through the details of that 8,332 sheep and lambs yarded at Catanning today. So a little bit up, well, 1,500 up on the numbers from last week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.